Welcome to the Addiction Solution Podcast, where we discuss some of the most controversial topics surrounding addiction, and we provide you with a real solution. Did you know that most people overcome addiction better than 90% and they don't struggle? You don't have to struggle either. That's why we offer this podcast. We are the authors of the Freedom Model for Addictions, Escape the Treatment and Recovery Trap. Our names are Stephen Slate, Mark Sheeran, and Michelle Dunbar. We offer two ways to work directly with Stephen, Mark, or myself, and that's in person at our private retreat or via Skype or FaceTime or one of the other video conferencing softwares. Our books are available at www.thefreedommodel.org or on Amazon or one of the other online retailers. And if you have questions and want to reach us, you can call us directly at 888-424-2626 or send us an email at info at thefreedommodel.org. You can also follow us on social media, including Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. All right, welcome to the Addiction Solution Podcast. I am Stephen Slate, here with Mark Sheeran. Hi, everybody. And we're going to talk about panic today and how that plays into um, changing a substance use habit, or I guess more accurately not changing it right yeah 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 people uh people freak out so so let's let's say that um you have a family that has a son or a daughter let's say a daughter who's using heroin and that son or daughter goes to a treatment center or just stops or in some way shape or form stops getting high for a while and then, and then they get high one night. They come home and they pass out on the couch or they're nodding out at the dinner table or some, some event like that happens. Everybody freaks out. It's the common response. Everybody freaks out. There's usually yelling involved. There's, there's yeah. genuine panic. Yeah. And I, it's funny because not funny haha but funny ironic that I've had I've had parents call me looking for me to agree because they assume that I should be panicked too as a professional and and play into it because most professionals do play into it they they say this is very serious oh yeah they can't and, even keep themselves from calling it a slip yeah right yeah which already makes it a bad thing like I mean nobody yeah. wants to slip on a banana peel Right, like right. that's you're gonna yeah. fall, you're gonna get hurt, or a relapse, they, like yeah. cancer. But I'm saying, like, yeah. even the professionals who consider themselves to be very enlightened and more calm, they'll call it okay. Well, it's just a slip. Yeah. You're still portraying it as like okay, so it's half a relapse. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's kind of what they're saying with slip. Yeah, and then but but then that's the light. That's response. what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah that's the yeah. light. Even the light response is is still really bad i think it's still it still ramps it up that this is an ominous event the person a person got high once is an ominous event and i know i jumped in on what you're saying but i just got to say i used heroin two weeks after i left the retreat that was the last time i ever used heroin and i was able to just keep that a total secret and to just be like okay i did that but it's not really what i'm trying to do with my life right now and and you know and because nobody found out, I think I, I think if anybody had found out, it would have been 
disastrous. You know what I mean? But nobody found out. So I was just able to sweep it under the rug and move along. Boy, that and you know, I did a lot of follow-up studies and and tracked people after they left the retreat, and that's a common experience where they go out and they they kind of test things. And there's two reactions. Now you were lucky that you your parents didn't know, right? Yeah. And uh, I I just had a fella. Um, he came here. He was in detox uh, at the local hospital, and and the parents were freaking out. Now it was a bad detox. It was rough. Their their son was in bad shape. I mean, genuinely bad shape. They were freaking out. So it's I spent probably six to seven hours on the phone for two days with the parents as they were going through this, and and I had to talk them off the cliff. They genuinely were yelling, "He's going to die! He's going to die!" And I and I said to them, "I said, you do understand, <laughs> he's in the hospital. Mm-hmm. He's stable. Yeah, he's, he's not going to die." Yeah. Right, and and but they were unable to see the present. They were un, they had projected into the future that it was a total crisis. Yeah, the only thing that makes this a crisis is the idea that it is one, because usually the person involved, the person getting high and drunk and then detoxing and stopping and experimenting, left to their own devices, doesn't think it's a crisis until they learn to see it that way. Yes, and they they're taught that by who by the counselors, the professionals, and especially if the parents are involved in a family program, forget it, all bets are off. I mean, they're going to be indoctrinated into crisis mode constantly yes. because it's a life and death thing. The reality is statistically, it's not really a life and death thing. Those rates are relatively low. You have a much, why wouldn't we be looking at the fact yeah. that most people get over it yeah. and, and they are able to move on with this? The problem is most people don't know that. Yeah. So that's part of the purpose of this of this specific podcast is to let people know the odds are well in your favor of getting on with your life after a very serious habit. Yeah. So so that person that comes home and they've been clean for a while. Oh, I'm sorry to use that word. Oh, I know. I know I I'm going to get raked over the coals in the comments for it. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> so, what are you saying? They're dirty. <laughs> yeah. No, I don't think they're dirty at all, actually. Um, so uh, I, I think that person that comes home and they use again um, now everybody freaks out if they find out and of course I know somebody who was in and out of rehabs for 15 years because yeah, every single time that he so much as smoked a joint he'd be back in another rehab and he died yeah it killed know, him and that process killed him that the process did, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. The panic at that, never letting him find his own way. Now this is eerily attached to the last podcast we did, yeah. Because a person has to feel a sense of control over their own decisions, and the decision to change has to be theirs. And sometimes on the way to deciding to change, they might test the waters again. They might use a bag of dope after leaving rehab. They might go out for a night of drinking, right? Yeah. And do we jump in and and um, stop that block, natural block them self block their own learning process of making their own discoveries? Right, that's the panic. We do that because we we think you know we we can't we can't let this continue. Oh my God, this is the addiction starting up again. Oh, let, let me jump in here because I just had a class, my last class that I just had before we came here. Mm-hmm. 
I was with a fellow who said, you know, I disagree with something in the freedom model, and that is that you you let people think that drinking and drugging is okay. Yeah. And you you know and. And he said, I understand that you have to have a judgment-free zone here at the retreat, but I don't, you know, wouldn't you agree that a person, when you have them in front of you, you should be saying something like, well, John, I think that your, your drinking and drugging has affected your relationships and, and guide them along to some sort of, you know, better life. And I said, how would I know if it's a better life. How would I know if that individual would have a better life if they were abstinent? Yeah. Am, I'm not God. I don't know. They may say to themselves quietly in the back of their mind, well, Mark, I, I don't think it would be better. As a matter of fact, in the first few classes, they obviously don't think that being sober would be better for them or they wouldn't be sitting with me. Exactly. So if I hit them with this idea that I need to show them that their life would be better without it, what I've done is exactly what the parents do, which is I take any bit of free will mm -hmm. and their ability to make decisions for themselves and I wipe it out right in class. Yeah. I'm doing the same exact thing. You make it irrelevant. That's you, right. You stop the process of them making their own discoveries and say, hey, we all know it's, it's imposing a should. Yes. Right? Yes. You should, you know, and I mean, tell that to smokers. Right. You shouldn't smoke. You'll get lung cancer. Yeah. I've been a smoker. I've struggled with it. And I've been there thinking, I'm going to give myself cancer. Guess what I'm doing? Smoking. Lighting up a cigarette. Smoking while I'm doing it. Right. You know, so as much as you can know, there's a rational... And I know I'm going a little away from your point because maybe the right answer is to smoke for the rest of your life or whatever. I don't know, right? right. Is what you're trying to say. Um, but in any case, whatever, even if, even if we could say objectively it's, it's right for a person to never drink again, even if we could say that, right? in their heart, they've trained themselves to feel like they need to drink. That's right. And the only way, even they can know rationally it doesn't make sense to right there yep. some but they've trained themselves to feel a need for that and they have to make their own discoveries if they're ever going to 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 move beyond that in any way yeah so this podcast is really kind of geared towards parents in a way because the hardest thing to do with somebody who's close to you is allow them to make their own decisions now if you're if you are a parent you understand how hard that is the first the first time you encounter that is when your kids are pretty small you know and they're starting to venture out away from your control um, but it's so crazy because we hang on there is a time when you have physical control over a child and it's and and it's it's understood that that's the relationship and that's when they're four five two you know maybe eight by nine, they're kind of doing their own thing, you know. By 14, mm. they're certainly doing their own thing, yes. you know. And so what do we have real control over? What do we actually objectively have control over when it comes to our children is their physical body. Mm -hmm. Think about, I'm going to ground you. Yeah. I'm going to lock your body in your room. <laughs> yes. Meanwhile, you're going to hate my guts mentally. Yeah. You're going to continue to want to do the thing that got you grounded. And every parent knows that, but it makes the parent feel better. 
to trap their body for a little while and make it so that their kid doesn't do the behavior that they feel is, is objectionable. So we're doing the same thing with addiction, right? We're doing the same sort of grounding idea and that's everybody panic, mm-hmm. freak out, and try and scare their kid into behaving in some other way. Or the more gentle method of of convincing them in a nice way to just get more treatment. Right. One or the other. Where they're going to get the panic from the counselors well, and the Well, that center. is panic. Because right. to say immediately, you've gone out for a night drinking, or I found some drugs and I know you've used a few times, we're ramping it. We're saying you need treatment. You need a professional or you need to be locked in a place. That is panic. Yeah. I don't care how nicely you wrap it up, how gentle you make it, how much you call it support or any other sort of thing. Um, a, probably 99% of the time, you're just ramping up panic. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying you, there's not a nice way to intervene, but it seems like most... because. Because you see with even these gentle approaches, like, well, we just try to keep them engaged in treatment. Maybe they've gotten all they can out of treatment. Right. Yeah. You well, know, like... And, and, and we know that treatment is ineffective for a well, whole variety well, of yes. reasons. Yeah. 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 But, but that road is, is over before it begins, you know, which is, is really tragic. But, but it, is, it is the panic. It is the subtle, I call it, the, the, you know, the quiet tyranny. It's quiet tyranny. So, it, so it's interesting because, you know, when we, when we help somebody at the retreat or, or however, over the phone, over Skype, whatever, um, our job is not to tell somebody what to do. And I can't tell you how many parents or loved ones or wives, or husbands, will say, aren't you going to create structure? Aren't you going to, aren't you going to corral them? Aren't, aren't you going to watch them? They can have their cell phone. Yeah, you know, I, I can't tell you the amount of, of people that panic over a tablet. Yeah, over the fact that their their forty five year old wife has a cell phone. Yeah, is in possession of it in the rehab. Now we're not a rehab. Yeah, <laughs> you know that's one of the things that differentiates us. Well, but well, go ahead. But it's craziness. That's real craziness. You know. Now they're afraid they're they're going to lose control. It always comes back to a certain level of, I need to ground my wife. Yeah. Isn't it? Yeah. I mean, isn't that the same thing they're doing? I'm going to take away your cell phone. I can't take it away, but hopefully the facility will. Yeah. So it becomes an extension of their control, mm-hmm. and then the treatment facility becomes that parent figure. And that's the last thing we do at the retreat. Yeah. I mean, so that, first of all, I was, I was just talking about this with somebody yesterday. The, the point where it really hit me how much the rehabs are about punishment and control was when Charlie Sheen, maybe 10 years ago, oh, yeah. when he said, okay, I've been to rehab a million times. Um, I'm just going to stay home, have somebody come visit me there and do treatment at home. I'm going to detox, not use there. I'm going to have counselors visit me. And that was unacceptable. Oh, they went crazy. And everybody they, was going. They were dragging out all the experts in the media. And I think it might have even been the New York Times. They had an expert and say, well, can Charlie Sheen do this? And the expert, the PhD, right, said, well, no, he really needs to go yeah, inpatient that- to a place 
where they take away his cell phones, where he has no access to yeah. cell phones, computers, and where he has to mop the floors and scrub the toilets and humble himself. And, An, a PhD came out and said this. And I don't know if it was the Times. It was some major publication. Yeah, it I was, couldn't it, believe it. it, it was, I did the counterpoint. I did oh, the counterpoint did? to that. Yeah, it's on the website. You can see it. Oh, really? Where they said, and and he went off, and, and my counterpoint was, of course he can. That was my answer. It was like five words. Of oh, course yeah. he can. <laughs> <laughs> you, oh. know? you know, because I couldn't get into the whole explanation of it. It would have taken, yeah. I, I, and I, I remember telling the reporter, I said, listen, uh, you need to understand what you're talking about, and you don't. Yeah. So uh, all I can tell you is that Charlie Sheen can get on with his life absolutely yeah and, and from then, home yeah from home yeah and that ironically was when we we had first published the home program yeah and we were the first ones that had a model for people at home which was unheard of at the time yeah. people were freaking out yeah and uh we now know that it it works great you know you can touch mm-hmm. people wherever they are um so uh yeah so yeah, yeah it it really is punishment and um but so uh you also have to think <clears throat> they want structure, right? They want yeah. this, they want that. I, I've been thinking lately about um, it's does that the, here's how I've been explaining the freedom model people. Um, I've said, look, we're not going to tell you what to do. And, you know, we have this whole chapter 13 where we say that in right. 15 different ways, right? Yep. We're not going to tell you what to do. Yeah. We're not controlling you. <laughs> because people are, they, they're so trained to yes. be like, tell me what to do. Like, yes. what things do I do? Can I moderate? Am I one of the people who can moderate? Right. Or do I have to abstain? Tell me what to do, right? Yeah. So they want goals. They want recovery activities that are somehow anti-addiction. Yeah, they, right? they want those distractions they from want the thing they want. The tools yeah. and yeah. the support. The gimmicks. Whatever, the gimmicky stuff. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And so... <clears throat> we've had to say in, in, in like look we're not giving you any of that we are just we want to show you that you are free how and why you are free and and Let's, always have been and actually. always have been right yeah you've chosen this you prefer there is it. never your your drinking has never been uncontrolled or out of control right and maybe heavy <laughs> with really yes. bad costs yeah Let's but it not wasn't use, but they, that, yeah yeah uncontrolled is a stand-in for unacceptable socially in right. our in our in our culture. That's all it means. Right. It does it, it does not and cannot mean literally out of control, right. involuntary. It has never been involuntary. You are free. That's a bunch of lies you've been fed. So we need to show you that. And we're gonna show you that, first of all, with the evidence about people who are able to quit without getting it well not I shouldn't even say able. Everybody's able to quit, but the majority of people quit without any help. That's right. That's right. We need to show you that evidence. They won't show you that in recovery programs. Right. They'll say those people weren't real addicts. Oh, I know. They weren't real alcoholics. Oh, okay, so they fit the diagnosis. So you're telling me your diagnostic system is bullshit then? Because they fit it. Right. Yeah, but anyways, we're going to show you that kind of evidence. We're going to talk through the logic about loss of control and even the, the experiments on loss of control. We're, we're going to go through all this. We're going to show you you're free. And we're going to show you that this is about pursuit of happiness. You have been doing this because you like it in some way. Right. If no matter can, how meager the benefits are, at that point in yes. your relative happiness, yes. And that if you find your way to seeing 
less use or no use as a happier option, you will easily carry that out. Because you always easily move in the direction of what you want. Yes. And that's right. what... So, yeah. restricting... So, so what I have been telling people to sum it up is, look, you do the math, all right? Um, should I or shouldn't I do this or that? People come up with all these things. Um, should I um, just not go around anywhere that they serve alcohol? And while I say, well, you know, is that helping you to figure out whether you'd be happier with less or no substance use? Right. I don't know that it does. And that is the litmus test. That's that's the system. I I, I want yeah. That's that's our gimmick. Right? That is our gimmick. All right. Just say, say it again though. Say it again. Yes. Any anything that you until you look once you know, you'll know. Yeah. Okay. But if if you don't really know, if you're unsure about your substance use and you want to do something about it, the question is: Is what I'm about to do? Does that help me figure out? whether I'd be happier with less or no substance use. Does it help me figure out my happiest option with substance use? Right. If it does... If it's in that framework... If it's in that framework, then yes, do it. If it's not, don't. It's a waste of time, and it could also just lead you astray. So, for so example... For, uh, yeah, an example would be going to meetings, right? Yeah. Should I go to meetings? I, I don't know. Does that answer that question? Yes. Does it Does it tell you whether you're going to be happier abstaining or moderating or not? Exactly. And and I can tell you that if you go to an A meeting, it doesn't do that at all. Does putting, well, maybe I should put obstacles between me and drug use. I could give my wife uh, my paycheck every week so I won't spend it on cocaine. Should I do that, Mark? Right. Should, should, <laughs> I, should, I, should I give my keys every day when I come home from work, my keys, so I go to the liquor store, so I don't go to the liquor store? Should I give my keys to my wife? Yeah. You know, there's, Does there, that answer the question? No. Right. It just, it just restricts you. And it delays the decision-making process about what you actually prefer. Yeah. What do you prefer? And, and and you see, there's there is a piece in this that we always end up hitting in every podcast, and that <laughs> is that you believe that alcohol or drugs has some value. Yeah, you see, and and that has to be challenged. But go to all the other podcasts that they we address that over and yeah. over and over again. Um, well, even being abstinent for a while, because I think so. I'm I'm a moderate drinker, but I was abstinent for. Close to five years. I was for 20. Okay. Yeah. And so... Even, I was happily Okay, absent, so yeah, absent. that's the thing I was too. Okay. But here's what I want to say. Like people, we talk about that. Like, hey, for some people, a period of abstinence, even if you do, maybe sometimes that helps you for when you, if you decide to moderate at some point, sometimes it's best to start abstinent first. Well, being abstinent just to prove you can do it, to see if you're strong enough. Yeah, God. Oh, if it's you're strong enough, like that's why I hate dry January or any of those things. Because oh. it's a bunch of people broadcasting the message that being sober is about is, strength. Is about strength. It's yeah. an endurance challenge. Oh, it was so hard to be sober for a month. Yeah. It's not. It's not. It's not. It's not if you prefer it. Yeah. You know, it's if not you, hard at all. Yeah, if you like to be sober, then yeah, yeah it's fine. It's easy. Now, right? I want to I say something so, about... Go ahead. Well, no, let me... Yeah, I just want to wrap on that. 
But if you choose a period of abstinence because you're like, this is a period of experimentation and discovery to see if I can enjoy myself without booze and drugs, to see if I can just don't, you know, see what it's like to deal with life without resorting to that, leaning on it as a crutch. If it's a discovery period, well then yeah, that helps you figure things out. I'll tell you, you know, you're, what you're talking about is exactly what I did when I got in the car accident and then I got sober. Um, it wasn't hard. Yeah. It wasn't hard. It, it became hard after they put me in treatment because I was mandated by the law and then they got my head all screwed up. But but it wasn't hard. I, I woke up the next day and, and in withdrawal and mm-hmm. that wasn't fun, but I got through that little window and then I was just excited to be clear. Yeah. I was so bored with drinking. Yes, that's I was how so I was about bored. drugs. Too. I was the whole rat race was not exciting. I can't tell you how many people I talked to at the retreat. You know, I've, I've helped literally tens of thousands of people now after you do it for decades and decades and decades, and and I listen to them talk about drinking and drugging, and they're not happy with it. They're bored out of their minds. But yet they hang on to the idea that it is the only thing that will make them happy because they've been taught that. Yeah. But when they tell me, so I say, is it the only thing that makes you happy? And they go, well, no, not really. I hate it. I'm really kind of bored with it. And I say, well, is it going to be hard to let go? Yeah. You know? So there's, there's uh, but they've been taught that it's this compulsion and, you know, all the other Well, and really what you're describing right now, right there, where people think that it's the only thing that's going to make them happy. What I've seen more and more is the um, the chemical imbalance idea with depression has come over to drugs, where it's where it's assumed that people who like opiates are lacking. They're having a chemical imbalance oh, that yeah. opiates or opioids balances off, yeah. or that alcohol does, or that amphetamines do. Right? right? There's this idea. The people are getting more and more that impression, so they think it's a special pharmacological key. To their happiness, even though they're not enjoying it in all these other ways now at this point. You know what right, I mean? It's right, like, yeah. I want to come back to where we were though, which was the topic of panic, because yes. we've all, we've got about five minutes left here. And we started this off talking about how parents interrupt or a husband or a wife interrupts a, an individual's discovery process yes. by panicking when they use it all instead of giving them a little bit of space and leeway to figure out for themselves yes. what they want. I mean, you've sent the message, you've asked them to go away and get help. Yes. <laughs> you know what I mean? And like, so so they've the question is on their mind. So it's like, well, now that you've sparked that, why don't you let them discover it, right? Yeah. In the same way, you can stop or blunt your own process of discovery by panicking. That's right. Right? And this is what I've had to help a lot of people through um, is when they're if a thought pops up you're talking about the person that's got the problem I'm talking right? about the person yeah. who has the problem now yeah. and they're like you know what I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to moderate now or I'm going to take a period of abstinence and, um, but they get a thought about having a drink at a time when you know they don't think they should right a you spurious know? thought hits them that they yeah. want to drink yep and, or get high yeah and what I've had to say is like, hey, you've been doing this for 10 years. Yeah. Right? It's not a so big deal. That's it's right. not a big deal. It is perfectly normal. We are habit machines. Everything that we do repeatedly in life 
starts to change your brain a little bit and opens up pathways for those yeah. for these for like, efficiency for, for yep. efficiency for these thoughts to come to mind that's right you know in in such and such situations so it's perfectly all right it's habitual it's a habitual thing for that thought to come up if you panic about it now you build it up oh my god that's a threat that's a that's yeah, a, a that's craving right. i better run to a meeting i better call a sponsor oh my god what is happening to me yeah, yeah. Uh, don't think about that you know all of this when you ramp it up like that you just make it you just turn it into a bigger boogeyman that's right, right. That's all right. it is is a spurious thought and you can look at it and say why am i thinking this oh yeah because like this is what i've done a million times before uh, let me jump or, in here I, <laughs> I just had a guy who left the retreat and uh, he went home and promptly got drunk. It happens, right? Yeah. And father called me all pissed off. You know, I spent all his money, da, 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 right? And I said, listen, I'll, I'll call him Scott. That's not his name, the father. I said, Scott, listen, I, I understand that you're scared. I get that. But if I could tell you one thing, it would be don't do anything. Don't do, don't have a conversation about it don't do anything just this one time just don't do anything because I've taught your son all this information over here you've read the book but you're working on old information in your mind you're just allowing yourself to work on old information it, the only way your son is going to figure out what he needs to figure out is if because he's an adult he's not 12 yeah is if he has the opportunity and the space to look around and say, is everybody freaking out? Yeah. The playground effect is not in order here, right? Is is If everybody is freaking out, maybe I should be freaked out. Yeah. You know, maybe this is a big deal again because that's the relationship of old and everybody will start assigning their roles again mm -hmm. and we'll be right back to square one because we're doing something different and new here and it's not practiced. You know, so we got to practice this new way of thinking, which is not to panic because drugs are not going to kill your son. He's still alive as we're sitting here. He's actually sober in the other room that you just told me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and you want to freak out on him and you started to and you're freaking out on me to freak out on me. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a good target. It's all it's all yeah. right. But I'm telling you, just don't react. So. He didn't, and he said, thank you for talking me off the cliff. I get an email the next day. Oh my God, my son texted me. He apologized. He said he just wanted to experiment. He figured out this really isn't what he wants, and he's really sorry that he behaved poorly. He goes, and then he said at the bottom of the text, he goes, I have never had my son react this way in my lifetime with him. <laughs> okay. And he was uh, 30, right? Yeah, he was 30 years old. So you're talking 30 years of history of 30, the old way, 30, 30, 30. but because the father didn't panic and it didn't it didn't creep yeah. in and get into this this mode of insanity. Yeah. And uh, and he's been doing great ever yeah. since. That ha that happens. Just don't panic. Yeah, it's a, a, a now, Go ahead. But there's one time that panic is appropriate. Mm -hmm. Maybe not panic, but that's a real crisis, and that's overdose. Yeah. Where if there's one time that a family should react quickly, it's with medical a medical issue. Medical issues, yeah. But anything short of that, 
The person's yeah. figuring out what they want. But if we're talking about a medical situation, I just wanna I wanna say that because I don't yeah. want people thinking I'm being dismissive of real crisis. And in this segment here, we're talking about people that we've prepped with. Hey, you have to figure out your happiest options. Right. And if they're using after getting that information, right? Yeah. Then we have to assume they're probably gonna. They're probably trying to figure it out. Yeah, because the will, education is pretty, you know, pretty intense that we give them. Or in some cases, I remember long ago at the retreat, where um, people we'd have a seventeen-year-old that got caught with pot, oh, but I the know, parents made him get help. I know, and they would be leave. They would leave, and they're going to use right away. And they go back to all that, and then we hear from that part from that kid two years later. Yes. That yes, and we had heard initially from the parents like, "Oh, he's using like crazy." I mean, well, what do you expect? He's seventeen, and he's probably just as far as we could gather, he was doing what normal seventeen-year-olds do. Yeah, he wasn't doing overboard drugs, right? right? And and then two years down the road, he contacts us and says, "Hey, you helped me so much," and that's because when he did decide he was going overboard, he remembered. He the just pulled back yeah. from going overboard. He that's remembered. Right. What we had said, which is like, look, you can be happier making a change too, if that's what you want. You want to explore that, and you know we were saying that all the way back then. So it's it's interesting because I I want to I want to preface this with a little bit of statistical information too. We're giving you isolated incidents of these. It's not the norm. The norm is sixty two percent of the people just stop and they abstain and they say that's the option that would make me the happiest. And they experiment with abstinence, and then they, they say, you know what? I'm happier doing this. Yeah. And their life takes off, yes. right? That's a real, that's the most common reaction to the freedom model is that they actually pick abstinence. It's what I did, it's what Steve did. Now, some of those people are gonna go back to drinking and drugging at some level way later, maybe a year later. It might be, in my case, it was 20 years later where I, I drink socially once in a great while, but it's really inconsequential to my life. Um, and and then there's so the group of people we're talking about really is outside of that 60, 62% it's the people that are in yeah. in a place where they need to figure it out on their own and well everybody needs to figure it out the, the 62% figured it out on their own too they, they, just, they picked, just they picked something that was socially acceptable right off the rip yes. <laughs> so there's no panic yeah 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 and you know but what I did so what I don't want to get lost in this, though, is that you like we don't we don't want to bring panic on another person, and we don't want to bring it on ourselves. That's right. In in reference to a little bit of use or a little bit of thinking about using. I know people p build that up to be big. It is not having thoughts about using is fine especially after you've been doing it for 20 years or five years or six years or a year yes. yeah so yeah. you know if if you know that's not what i want to do right now but somehow the thoughts pop up then they have to be related to just habit and you have to be able to pivot from it and say yeah okay it's normal that i think that but i've been damn happy um being absent here for a while and boom you yeah. know you turn it to something positive instead of Oh my God! How am I going to get control over this? And yes, oh, this is yes. going to plague me all day. What and what I found out is so many people get to the point when we've had you know I had somebody just here that 
was 40 years in and out of rehabs and um mm, in aa and and he the minute a thought would come the second that a thought about drinking would come he would go and drink because the, because he was taught that that's the, what you do that, that was so powerful that it was going to that it was an overpowering craving and so he was beyond the point of panic he was the point he was to the point of just being a slave to any passing thought about drinking right which and is a learned thing it's a learned thing yeah you know so we don't want to be panic um we want, and I guess the only way I know how to do this is to give people the right information. That's right. Now, arm them with the information that those thoughts aren't threats. That's right. You know, and uh, and just remind them that that's going to be the number one thing that as you go down, like don't panic if you got drunk for a night. If you said I was going to have two and you had ten, right, right. Just get up the next day and say, okay, wait a minute, was ten really satisfying? Yeah. That's like you can't you can't run back to rehab in that minute. You just say, is that what, is, is, is this, this what, what I want to do? Is this what I, is, is this, this what makes me happy? Yeah. Yeah. You know, no panic. Sorry. No. I'm preaching, but um, no panic. <laughs> so that's the message for today's podcast. No panic. Yes. All right. Thank you so much for listening today. If you or someone you know is seeking help, you can reach us at 888-424-2626 or through our websites at thefreedommodel.org or soberforever.net. You can also check us out on social media, including Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. From everyone here at the St. Jude Retreats and the Freedom Model, we wish you well.